0: n-e-t-s-u-i-t-e dot com slash (laughs) w-t-f all right let's do this how are you what the fuckers what the fuck buddies what the fucking ears what the fucksters what the fuckadelics how's it going it's mark maron this is my show welcome to it you're listening to wtf the podcast First of all, I'm doing more Trippany dates, more uh, more dates at the Trippany House at the Steve Allen Theater here in Los Angeles. I am doing the uh, October 28th, November 11th and November 18th. Jeff Tate will be opening for me uh, tomorrow. Uh, Please come if you'd like to come. They've been fun shows and it's eight dollars and it benefits the theater. You don't know what's going to happen. But I'm sure I'll make myself uncomfortable initially. Yesterday was football day. I did not partake in that. I have no problem any longer with anybody who enjoys football. Knock yourself out. Just don't fucking judge me. You know, in, in, uh, you know, I got tweeted. I said, look, I hope you enjoy football. I don't know how to. And some guys like uh, you hipsters. None of you like football. I haven't liked football my whole life. Never call myself a hipster. I'm a grown ass man. And I don't like sports. It's not a matter of me judging you any longer, but it was just an honest tweet. And that guy's a dick. You see, the thing about it is it's all very predictable. People label people. People put people in a box. What did I do today? I played guitar, ate some food, went and uh, traded in some records. That's some man shit. I don't care what you say. Watching football all day. Well, I hope your little teamy won so your life can have purpose for a few days. I know I've got three new loop records and a few cheap trick records. I know that happened. There ain't nothing. There's nothing uh, weak about that. And I built my cats a fucking fountain. That's right, fucker. I got down on my hands and knees and built my cats a fountain. Because I was told that these fountains uh, kind of uh, inspire the cat to drink a bit more. That has not been the case yet. I got a pretty high-end one. I'm not saying it was thousands of dollars, obviously. It was under $100, obviously. But it was a porcelain cat fountain. The idea is the running water makes it very compelling to them. They like to stick their little cat noses into the running water to feel connected to something that is genetically wired in them. Perhaps they're by the bank of a river or a a creek or somewhere out in the wild. The wild that's inside of their genetic loop in their little coil that's in there, every cell that says running water. That means we're outdoors and we're hunting. I just hunted down that half a can of wet food and killed it. And now I'm going to stick my face in the running water of this creek that's in this nice bowl that's plugged into the wall. But so far, nothing has happened other than monkey has been nervous about it. He's, he's looked at it a couple of times. Doesn't make sense to him. Uh, Perhaps they know more than we think. Perhaps they're thinking in their deeply wild genetic uh, history, their lineage that goes all the way back to the first cat sitting by a river. Maybe he's thinking like, what is this asshole think he's doing? Does he think we think this is a a river? What a fucking idiot. This is a nice bowl with a fountain in it. But uh, I don't know if I'm going to drink out of it. And I know this isn't a big deal, but it is. You know, I I guess that maybe uh, football guys don't talk about this stuff. Football guys just drink freely and have no shame about sitting on the couch watching football with their fat, hanging over their two tight pants with their team jerseys on. I'm not judging. I'm just saying their lines have been drawn between what a man is to some people, you know, the definitions of it. I, 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 without tools, built a cat fountain yesterday on Sunday. And again, I'm going to say I bought uh, three cheap trick albums and three loop albums and uh, did a little work. I plugged some things in, switched out some extension cords, did a little of that, played some very seriously serious guitar on uh, on a Gibson 335. Yeah, a Gibson 335. That's a fucking man's guitar built in Memphis, Tennessee. I laid out some licks on a Gibson 335 slightly distorted, powerful, while you sat and watched other men play with a ball, I was making real blues music with a man's instrument plugged into a tube amplifier. You want to have a cockfight? All right, what'd you do? Had some chips, had a few brews, yelled at a television, was upset or elated, Because your team won. I sent distorted blues licks into the ether. My dick was so big in my living room that it annoyed my neighbors. Now watch my cat. I watch my cat look confused at a fountain. No, I was slightly upset by it because I want him to like it. So today on the show, a man named Bill Sheft is on. I don't know if I'd expect a lot of you uh, to know who he is, but he is a comedian. And he's a writer for Letterman, and uh, he's written several books, uh, one of which is out now. Uh, His latest novel, Shrink Thyself, uh, came out a little earlier this year. You can get that wherever you get books. He's had a couple other books, I believe, out there. Uh, Also, I wanted to mention that if you want to hear other episodes about what it's like to work on the David Letterman Show, you can get the app, upgrade to that premium. There's episode 28 with Eddie Brill, who uh, does the warm-up for Letterman for years did some of the comedy booking, no longer does that. Episode 228 with Meryl Marco, who was there at the beginning of Letterman and dated Letterman. And episode 270 with Chris Elliott, the amazingly funny Chris Elliott, who was on the first version of the Letterman show as a recurring guest and writer. Those are all available at the, the WTF app. You can get the free app and upgrade if you want to learn more about Letterman. But Sheft has been writing for the Letterman for like 15 years or more. I'm not sure I'll talk to him about that. But outside of writing for Letterman, Couple of things. He was one of the first guys I ever really saw do comedy live. He had a, a disposition. He used to have a little cigar. He had an attitude, you know. He, and now, you know, I'll talk to him about that and I'll talk to him about where he got that disposition. But, uh, but what he also is known for is uh, years ago, and uh, you comic nerds, you comedy nerds, some of you, the certain type of comedy nerd, know about this. Years ago, Bill Hicks, uh, the last appearance he did on letterman before he passed away was uh cut out bill hicks did a letterman set and it was cut from the final broadcast and they aired a set that bill chef did uh earlier that night on a different show even now i never heard the true story i know that david letterman made an apology to bill hicks's mother publicly and i believe aired the set in its entirety if i'm not mistaken. I didn't know what happened. We all assumed that he had said something to piss somebody off, whether it was about abortion or about uh, I can't remember. I had heard that it was uh, censorship because of of uh, advertisers. But but all I know is Bill Sheft was there. They used his set. So that kind of hung on him. He's the guy that replaced Hicks the night he got cut out of the Letterman show. Now, I'm going to ask Bill Sheft about it and I'm going to get his angle on it. Uh, and you guys are going to do with it what you will, but, uh, he was there and, and, uh, he, he's going to tell me what, what happened from where he was sitting. He was the guy that replaced Hicks. So, so if you're a deep comedy nerd or you're a Bill Hicks fan, or you're a conspiracy theorist, who's got an angle on that. Now you'll have another angle, I guess is what I'm saying. Is that okay? Good. I went to see Birdman. It's a very compelling flick. I think it's smarter than I even think it is. Uh, There were moments uh, after the movie where I was like, I don't know, was that uh, over the top or was that actually a smart movie? And then you sort of start thinking about it deeper. You're like, holy shit, some of those actors had to act in three different ways and three different levels. And it was interesting because some of it seemed a little broad and some of the characters seemed a little, um, you know, heavy handed. But then you're starting to think like, well, what was the real play? It all took place in a theater. So what's a play? What isn't a play? What kind of tricks are they playing with the cinema? And and oddly, the only one that isn't, um, you know, isn't heavy-handed in a way is Michael Keaton, who plays this uh, this old actor who was known for this uh, superhero he played uh, in blockbuster movies. And it's a very sort of claustrophobically and creatively shot all within the confines of a theater, give or take a couple of exteriors at a bar and on the street. It dealt with... Uh, theater versus celebrity versus in kids versus old people and it it dealt with a lot of stuff but he i mean edward norton's always fucking solid and michael keaton was brilliant and uh you know zach galifianakis was in it he was good everyone was good it was an interesting movie it was an interesting big movie i don't know if i love the ending you know but i'm not going to tell you what it is but keaton was great and you guys know me i am uh, somewhat of a loner I've had a lot of people on this show. I've had Michael Keaton on this show, and it was a great conversation. But do I talk to Michael Keaton? No. Do I talk to anybody, really, who's been on this show in a regular way? Not really, except for the ones that I'm closest to, you know, close friends. But, uh, but you know, I, 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 I took a chance, and uh, I had an old email address for Michael Keaton. I just texted, hey, man, fucking great job in the movie. Hope you're well, Mark. I did that. I'm not expecting to hear back. I just, I just thought, but you know, I always feel weird about that. Like, that, is he going to get that and go like, ah, this is that kid from that podcast. Maybe I shouldn't have given him my email. Did, I've never emailed him before, except the one time when we were going to do the podcast. See, this is why, this is why I don't, uh, this is why I don't, I don't email. This is why I'm not giving John Hamm a call right now. This is why I mean, I just, <laughs> so let's talk to Bill Sheft here. This is a great conversation. It's one of my favorite, uh, uh, as of late, I had a great time talking to this guy. Podcasts. it's weird because when uh, you know I, I you know i got the opportunity to, to take a look at the book and they they said bill sheft and he, he wanted to do the show and uh, you hold there's a uh, you have there's a, a part of my brain you have a a solid place in my brain do you know why
1: i i think i do really well because well I think I was one of the first people you saw do stand up. That's Is, right. Is there any way that you were involved or MC that that event that HBO did Catch a Rising Star live camp, on campus? No, campus comedy. Campus comedy at Tufts University. That was where the show was. Where where they taped. Right. And I didn't MC. Well, I uh, well I did a lot of um before they got the show. They had uh, all these uh, talent shows at all these colleges. Right, I auditioned. Okay, and where where did you audition? Did you audition in the basement somewhere? Did you audition? Oh no, I
0: auditioned first in a in a in a college uh, classroom. That's uh, right. Right, Right. and then we did a a showcase at the Comedy Connection in Boston. Okay, but I I believe you didn't emcee the night. You know, you weren't on camera, I guess, but you didn't. No,
1: I I did the warm-up for Joe Piscopo, and there were two tapings at at Tufts, and there's two things that I remember about that night, is that my parents were there, and it was a huge... uh, uh, Oh, Piscopo hosted. hosted, Piscopo hosted, hosted. and and, and there were two tapings, so I was warming up, and right before uh, I went on, I overheard my father say to a complete stranger... If I got to go to another fucking stand-up show, that's it. <laughs> and now I got to go on. And I did and, and I did really well in the warm-up. And I did uh, uh, so well that the producers came up to me and said, uh, Joe is going to do his own warm-up for the next tape. Really? Because I had no idea that he didn't have an act. Right. I had, uh, You know, I you just, just had the characters or right, whatever. So, right. um, so that's what I remember. But I probably, yeah, but I emceed a lot of those auditions. And I remember the one in the classroom and um i didn't remember there being uh, maybe that was it you know may, yeah i didn't remember And it that's when I show. met leary really because i met leary at the auditions at emerson and he was like a graduate teacher uh-huh and that's when i met him for the first time yeah because
0: the, the thing i remember was that uh you know you uh you had this whole stick in terms of like you were already an old man or something. You had a cigar. That's about right. You had a, yeah. a suit. Like you know, you seemed to be very put together, and you, you sort of you know, cut a, a, an impression. Like I, I mean, right. you you like you made an impression. Yeah, so that's eighty
1: three. So I was all of twenty six. Yeah, I mean, you had this right. whole
0: thing, you're very confident, and you had your cigar, and you right. you're swaggering yeah. around. Yeah,
1: that's yeah, yeah. you got me the year I was confident. You got me <laughs> that. You got me. And, uh, and and I would, yeah, because I'd been a sports writer, and then I became a comic, and I still went with the same kind of outfit with the tie-down and the cigar, and whenever Jerry Seinfeld would see me at Catch a Rising Star, he would say, still trying to do that 545 to Greenwich thing, aren't you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, you had, yeah. but it was your thing, right? right? That was my thing. But where'd you come from? Why was your father at that show at Tufts? Did you come well, from I grew New up from England? From Boston. I oh, grew up in Boston.
1: I grew up in yeah. I grew up in in, in, in New- Newton, Newton and Beverly. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And and my father, uh, my father was a, a businessman, and my mother was a stay-at-home narcissist. And yeah. uh, you know that's what <laughs> happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, my father was
0: a doctor and narcissist, and my mother was a stay-at-home narcissist. Yeah. That's very funny. Now, we, so you we got auditioned little...
1: for that show? Oh, that's that's wow!
0: Before I even did stand up, I was in college, and I talked to my buddy on the five hundredth episode. My buddy Steve Brill, we put an act together because we saw the signs around the school. We went and put this act together. It was mostly sketches. It wasn't really stand up. There was no real team dynamic. We didn't have any structure around like the way we interacted, but we did it right. And uh, and you know, I had, I had the stand up bug early on, and I wanted to do stand up, and I went down to catch, and i seen you, uh, I saw you a couple other times, and you're always like, that's that guy,
1: the guy with the <laughs> cigar from the thing. The guy that's much older than he actually is, yeah. Yeah, but you were just like, yeah, so that much. That was the whole, yeah, that was, the, I guess that was my shtick. I guess it was. It just was, I mean, that was my sort of outfit since birth, you know, the coat and tie and the tie down. And no, I, I liked could, it. It was, yeah. it was classic, it, you know. Yeah. There are there were, there were people that, I guess they would call it branding now. But you know who was on Camp, two things about Campus Comedy one of the people that was on that show was jeff dunham yeah actually made it into when and, he only had one puppet when he only had one puppet that's <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. only had, and, and and it's the only show in the history of hbo that they never repeated I think, really i don't think they ever showed it more than once or twice what, it was that bad? It was just it was kind of nothing. It was it wasn't like the young comedian special. It was a big idea. I think. I it think w- they
0: they thought maybe they could franchise it. Like you know, this is it never ending. You know, we could just go audition kids all day long.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. And it it, it at the end of the day, and I think that one of the. Uh, you know, and one of the people on the campus comedy show was a woman that was in my class at Harvard, so she was at least 27 or 28. Wait, 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 let me try and I think I better You're Andrea Michaels. Is right.
0: How hilarious is that?
1: Is that great? How the fuck can I remember that? I don't know. Wow. That's unbelievable. Let's go for a thousand now. That is unbelievable.
0: Yeah. Well, I remember because she was attractive and she had this odd act and she did slightly provocative stuff. Right, she was. She, she had one joke. that I'm trying to remember now because I remember there was one joke she did. I thought was really funny. It was kind of sexual. I remember
1: one joke that, of hers where she um, uh, that her breasts are different size, and so when she wears her uh, University of Minnesota t shirt, it looks like Minnesota. Yeah, oh, right, you right, know, right. That yeah. was right. <laughs> <laughs> but
0: uh, yeah, so so you grew up in Newton. Right.
1: And you went to Harvard? Yes, I did. Well, what, what, what was your life like? What'd your dad do? My dad was uh, my dad was in the shoe business for, Shoes. Yeah, for a while, and then he was in the health and beauty aids business. So he's a, uh, uh, what he had, uh, what was it, not a salesman,
0: but a what? No, he
1: was, you know, a guy. It, it was one of those things where it said, Dad, what are we supposed to put down where it says occupation? Just put Executive. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those guys. yeah. yeah. too hard to explain yeah just yeah exa- and um and like i said you know my mom you know a, a brilliant woman was a great uh golfer and a stay-at-home narcissist and they had six kids six that i was the fifth of six a large jewish family never enough guilt to go around how is that po- i don't know and and uh and my uh my parents were were more, uh, much more interested in having the children rather than, than raising, raising them. Yeah. <laughs> so, but six—that's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. Yeah, if you're not Orthodox, no, <laughs> it, it doesn't. Yeah, it, and it makes uh, it makes no sense. And you know, uh, uh, liberal Jews. I used to do a line in my act that you know we believed in the Ten Commandments, but we believed you could pick five. And, you know, <laughs> that's all funny. That covered, yeah.
0: But I notice it, like on your uh, wiki page, or even in uh, maybe it's on your. Uh, on your uh, your
1: website yeah. com, you don't list comic i was a comic for 13 years yeah well I, I think well i do on in the bio i say i was a comic for 13 years and um, and I'm uh, I'm very proud that I was a comic. I still feel like I'm uh, a comic in many in many ways. And I was lucky enough to be a comic at the best time to be a comic when the boom happened and you could really make a living. I mean, and you know, my wife Adrian Tush. I mean, we were out on the road thirty weeks a year. And yeah. This is right when how's she doing? She's doing great. Thank you. She was uh, she uh, last year was a tough year, but she's great now. She's oh uh, good. Yeah, she's great. I remember and, her. Yeah. Well, that was, so are you the only show business kid in your family? Yes. What they all they all end up doing? Uh, well, my uh, my oldest brother is a professor. My of what uh, he uh, of uh, of uh, journalism and literature down at North Carolina Central University. And my uh, oldest sister is an occupational therapist. Another sister is a teacher. My other sister is a uh, a doctor. She's a clinical wow. psychiatrist. And my uh, my younger brother went to Harvard after me, and he's. Uh, He's he's the guy. If you're a police officer in Massachusetts, if you want to pass the the sergeant's exam, you take his class. He uh-huh. uh, he lectures cops and uh, much funnier than I am. And he's got the because uh, he's got the shtick. I just had the words. Uh, my brother always had the shtick, but uh, my funny family. Well,
0: know. yeah, it sounds like the real liberal Jews. Everyone yeah. went into reasonable, helpful occupations. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, and, not a businessman in the bunch. No,
1: and and my because my mother was believed that you you did service, and now I don't know how telling jokes. At a Chinese restaurant is doing service. It but, is, but uh, so you you're a sports fan, which I am not. Yeah, I was a sports writer for a while, and that's where I started.
0: So when so you go so your parents are supportive. You got into Harvard. Did your dad go to Harvard? No, my dad
1: went to Yale. Right. My mom went to Harvard.
0: So you had some pedigree there.
1: A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. And I that went helps. To, I did the whole deal. I went to Deerfield Academy, which is an all boys. Prep school. Where's and, that one New that's in New Hampshire? Deerfield, Massachusetts. Massachusetts, it's on, right by Springfield. So
0: it's not Exeter. It's not the other one, St. Whatever, St. Paul. St.
1: Paul's. My brother went to St. Paul's. My <laughs> older brother went to Andover, and, um, and my, my older brother was uh is was... an Exeter one. Yeah, Exeter. The, the two, the, the 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 big three are Andover, Exeter, and and Deerfield. Those mm-hmm. are the those are the big three, and then you got the other places, right. Those uh, but, are the
0: ones that are sort of the uh, right. uh,
1: preparing you for your place in the aristocracy. Right. Now, my, when <laughs> when when George Bush was was not elected the first time in mm. two thousand,
0: the, sec- oh, the first right, second uh, f- one.
1: The first, yeah, uh, I said to my older brother, "Hey, how about your old uh, stickball commissioner is now president of the United States?" He said, "What are you talking about?" I said, "George George Bush. He was the stickball commissioner at Andover when you were a freshman. He was a senior." He said, "No." He said, "You're wrong." He said, "The stickball." commissioner when I was a freshman was this asshole from Texas... Oh, yeah, right, right, same guy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what's weirder about that story uh, that he didn't remember or that there's a a stickball commissioner.
1: Yeah, well, that was... What the fuck is a stickball
0: commissioner? Well, they
1: had a stickball league at Andover for all the, you know, all the... This is what the elite is doing in prep school? Back then in the 60s... Taking a a
0: game that is notorious for coming from the streets out of lack of a field... Right.
1: ...and appropriating it for their their waspy needs? Right, it's it's this sort of irony, look at us slumming. It's yeah, that whole. Yeah, we don't have that, the equipment, right? What, did they not play it on one of the two fields at the school? Did they right, play yeah. it in the parking lot? I, they, uh, uh, you know, we played it, and you would play it sort of. We, we played it, and we used sort of this transformer for the backstop. It, did, you know, you would play it on some weird configuration, or you know, yeah. So okay, so you go to Harvard, what, you way in English? I, no, I majored in Latin because I thought the church was going to come back and. Um, <laughs> Come on. <laughs> and, and uh you, you were just trying to pass. No, I swear I could because I, you know, I majored in classics. I thought that, you know, I was gonna be uh, I don't know, a Latin teacher or a pharmacist or whatever you're gonna be with a and, Latin and, degree. Yeah, and and then um Did it help you at all? Did you read well, the classics? It's, the, and- it's oh absolutely. I read everything and it's the best training for a writer. Really? I Because it teaches you the value of a word. Uh-huh. And you're you're reading you know, I believe the greatest literature in the earliest form. I learned so much. But Latin's like the root of most language. Correct. And I, I majored in that. And I, uh, you know, I, there's only one thing you can do is be a teacher. And I came from a family of teachers. I think, well, maybe I'll do that. Your mother I, was a teacher? No, no, my mother. My mother. Uh, my mother did a lot of volunteer work in politics, sure. and sure. you know, worked in the Jack Kennedy congressional campaign. Oh yeah. And uh I said, "Well, what was what was that like?" he had the filthiest apartment I've ever seen, you oh, know, really. Gonna <laughs> That's do what this? we get. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah But uh but there's a lot of my uh my mom in this book and also in it's the new her, book. she yeah, she's um she's 91, but I have taken the liberty of re- writing her eulogy. <laughs>
0: In the book, in the book, and shrink thyself. Yeah, and
1: yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff about uh, about her. She's a tremendous character. She once I once said to her, "Mom, how about a little unconditional love?" And she said to me, "I'll show you unconditional love when you've earned it," which is phenomenal. It, <laughs> you really can't do any better than that. And another, I don't have that. The other one I have in the book was my my younger brother came home one night and he said, "Listen, I've decided I'm gonna." Uh, run for office one day yeah and my mother said why are you going to do that so you can win and run an employment agency and that was it he never that was the end of it so she had gotten
0: that cynical about politics at some point
1: yes yes yeah, yeah that that uh yeah i think so but i mean she was still uh interested and active but she was very yeah. Uh, that that not yeah
0: you know, once you work within it, right?
1: So, yeah, I majored. So I majored in Lamp, but I also wrote for the for the paper at Harvard, the Harvard Crimson. I was a sports writer, and I always loved sports. My uncle was a very famous sports writer. My uncle was, was Herbert Warren Wind, the the dean of American golf writers. He uh, coined the phrase "Amen Corner" at the Masters. He wrote for the New Yorker for years, and he was a big influence. Do on Do you know me. him? Oh my God, yeah, yeah. We were. I mean, he was. I, he's the most influential man in my life. And uh, he's the reason I'm a writer as much as anything else. So I wanted to become a sports writer. And so out of college, I worked in Albany, New York, for two years. And I don't know if you've been to Albany, but it's not some of God's best work. And yeah. uh, well, a sport, well, I was a sports yeah. writer for two years. And then I quit the job. But, and I came to New York, ostensibly, to become a freelance sports writer. But I couldn't make any money. And I had done stand-up. Between the ages of 18 and 22, I'd done stand-up like twice a year. Mm-hmm. You know, I was one of those guys. When I was 18, we stole a faculty member's car at Deerfield, and I went out to a bar in Northampton. I, and I always thought it was kind of something I could do as a hobby. And then I realized that I couldn't make it, wasn't making any money, and I said, I, I guess I should sort of pursue this. And I auditioned to Catch a Rising Star in December of 1980, and I had and the woman that was running auditions, she thought I was funny, but she thought I was a little arrogant. She wasn't wrong, and she wouldn't pass me. It took me six months to pass audition. That's there. A, that, that's that's,
0: that's uh, still a small amount of time, but, relatively but speaking. For
1: me, being arrogant, it was very long. Who and the I, fuck do you think you are? Right. Yeah. But meanwhile, I got even with her because I married her, and that was she Adrian. was oh yeah yeah she was she used to run audition night. Oh, that's hilarious. So, before and, before Lewis right before before Lewis before I mean uh, yeah back then the mcs ran the show they put people on was Belzer gone already Belzer had just left all right let's go
0: back for one second I you know about sports writing you know and in, in relative to to stand up in some in some way in, in my mind you know when you tell me not being a sports guy and certainly not being a golf guy that your uncle was this uh, this well- respected golf writer yeah and I and I'm thinking to myself what does it take? To make golf exciting. You know, what do you learn as a sports writer? I mean, I know obviously if you're into sports, you know, you live it, you breathe it. I learned that from a, a friend of mine. He, you know, it's how you feel alive. It's a, it's something that gets right. you out of yourself. And, and mm-hmm. But
1: what it, what is some of the tenets? Okay, well, that's easy to answer with golf because golf is something that people are passionate about, whether they are good at it or not, because it's something you can play your whole life. You play? Uh, I play. I don't play. I I don't play very much. And I look like a guy who doesn't play very much. I used to play a lot more. And, uh, you know, my mother was a wonderful golfer. My father was a good golfer. My brother's a good golfer. I just don't play enough. And um, tell me the joy of golfing, Bill.
0: Tell uh, me why I mean you know because I know people who love golf like Ray Romano loves golf there's people you know, John friend, Mendoza loves yeah golf. Kirk uh, my friend Kirk it's just sort of like what the hell is it
1: I know you know you're outside you walk yeah you're outside it's the well it's the the pursuit of par the fact that um you know it 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 plays to your most grandiose expectations about what you are a, as an athlete and on 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 a given day you know you and Tiger Woods
0: mm-hmm.
1: could be in a twosome together mm-hmm. at a par three and uh, Tiger could hit his drive way over the green and you could hockey it up to about 20 feet short of the green and get down in two and it might take Tiger three to get down and in that moment you're better than him <laughs> so I think that that's the thing that people go that, 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 that people so you can be better than the best on a good day in a moment uh-huh. in a moment uh-huh. and larry david loves i mean i mean i saw larry david have the round of his life he shot 38 on the backside at riviera and it was like a scene you know with larry you know <laughs> you know how when people are out at dinner you know straight people yeah. you know non comics they're out at dinner and something silly will happen and people will say oh this is just like an episode of seinfeld mm-hmm. and the difference is when you're with larry yeah Things happen, you know, you never know when, like, a a little plot line in Curb Your Enthusiasm may break out. And I was with Larry that day, and he started, and all of a sudden this sort of gallery forms behind him. Of these gardeners and these caddies, He's just on, and and you know, this hey, you know, Mr. David, yeah. they're going crazy um, because he was doing so well. Yeah, because, because, because they were you... doing, and and you know, maybe they thought he was just on a run. He and was he, having... Yeah, and he never. I mean, he'll tell you, he never uh, uh, played better than that uh, afternoon. But people, um, people love it because uh, I think people love it because it's it's one of those things. It's so it's such a simple game. And it's so aggravating and you're just constantly pursuing being as good as you, as you think you are. And then also you can play it all year round. You can play it everywhere. Every courses are different. You can travel to play yeah, it yeah, and, yeah, and it's is, you yeah. know, because because a tennis court is a tennis court is a tennis court right. either it's and quiet, a basketball it's court yeah. is a basketball court and a baseball you know but but a, every golf course is different so that's the thing that's that's when you get to scotland yeah right, right. and yeah. that's the right and that's what's i think that and so uh Writing people get golf. involved in the equipment mm-hmm. they get involved in the history they get involved in golf course art and my uncle was incredibly generous Because he would share his knowledge. Every piece that he wrote, and he would write these 10,000-word essays for the New Yorkers. And every piece that he wrote, and he's also... My uncle is a character in my first novel, The Ringer. Yeah. And uh, every piece that he wrote was a history lesson, was an architecture lesson. It was a golf lesson. uh, Because he was not like a lot of writers who kept their real knowledge to themselves well so th- so what it does
0: then and what makes them great is it elevated it to an ultra almost almost cultural criticism, correct, so, like anything like a great essay or a cultural critic, you know some of some of the sports writers you know have elevated it to that to where it becomes about morality, mortality correct. history
1: right and yeah. and and my uncle um he covered every masters from from uh, nineteen forty three to uh 1988 and then he was sick in 1988 he had prostate so he couldn't cover the 1989 masters so he gets out of the hospital and and i say you want to come over and watch it with me and this is like you know this is like having virgil read you the aeneid so he's sitting and he knows every blade (laughs) of grass at augusta and it's one of those things where a guy hits and he says that's going to come up to a little oak on the left and there it is and (laughs) And there's two things that he that he hated about the Masters. Um, yeah. uh, he hated the 17th hole, and he hates Vern Lundquist. He hated the old CBS Sports announcer who's still working, Vern Lundquist. So the first uh, d- Saturday, we're watching, and they announce the guys. This is my favorite story about him. And and we're watching TV, and we're they are announcing. Uh, okay, let's go down and see the course. Of, you know, I'm uh, I'm uh, Ben Wright at. Uh, 15 i'm gary mccord at 16 and i'm Vern lundquist at 17 and my uncle says that's a good spot for you Vern screams at the tv <laughs> but i miss him he's a tremendous guy so, just crazy smart
0: so writing about golf then you know they, it, it has this long history you know and it has a, a lot of uh, it's it's an old game and it, it's, right so you can really sort of open it up to a lot of stuff but writing about basketball baseball football right and hockey, there's yeah there's, as a sports writer you got to write about everything right correct
1: yeah and he wrote about everything. He wrote, wrote great pieces about hockey and tennis. He's in the tennis Hall of Fame. He's in the golf Hall of Fame. He's a brilliant sports writer, but golf was his game. So
0: those are big shoes to fill that you decided oh, to Oh, I follow. never
1: was no, I was never going to be him.
0: But I know, but you yeah. but he's the one who inspired Absolutely.
1: you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he was very he was very encouraging, but nobody was happier when I got the job on on the Letterman Show than he was because he always uh, uh, wanted for me to be able to write jokes for somebody else. He always loved that idea. He said, it would be great if you could, you know, if if Bob Hope was still alive, and he was then. if He would say, so if that Bob was, a- Hope was still alive, it would be great if you could right. write for him. And Bob Hope was going <laughs> to live for alive. another 20 years. You could
0: have written for Bob Hope. Right. But I think that's interesting because he saw it uh, from an occupational point of view. He didn't necessarily think that being a comic was a, a, a smart journey, but to be a writer... You know, to be the guy
1: that works, but he you know. understood that being a comic, that it had that it had a lot to do with writing, that it had a lot to do with uh, editing in your head, that it had a lot to do with wordplay. But also to be so,
0: successful, it had a lot to do with luck.
1: Right. Well, <laughs> they're always afraid for your for your security. Right. But the the thing is 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 now with some critical distance, I now figured out the, the thing that uh, the comics that make it have that of course oh, that Jesus. I never please, had please here's tell the us. thing here it is if we just, Adrian and I just figured this out oh my god this it's, is it's, uh, this is years of study okay there's there's one thing a lot of them have balls yeah. well okay that's balls you got to have balls but you have to have complete and utter commitment in the material it's the commitment you know that's the thing about hicks when they talk about hicks you know his stuff was great but the commitment to the material yeah that's the thing you know martin short you know he comes on and there's no to me there's no better letterman guest than martin short and great he panel does, guest yeah, and he does those silly songs mm-hmm. and they're just nonsense but the commitment he acts like this is the greatest song ever written and i'm the greatest singer ever but, is, I, but i think don't you think uh, but but he's
0: you know he's a song and dance man
1: R- right but 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 it is but they are they are for you know they are but comedy songs. right but it's the but he right commits- well that's
0: hilarious yeah right. but also like a long, in stand-up it has to be commitment uh behind a point of view
1: absolutely
0: because if you're just a joke teller you're going to struggle a little bit no matter how committed you are. Right. right well, to
1: well joke that was my well to me that was now we're talking 20 you know 25 years later my problem was always hey you know i wrote it i think it's well written here it is right not but, good enough. That's well, not well, a no, performance. But, 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 That's not a performance. Right,
0: but it becomes who is this guy? he has got a jacket and a cigar. Right, right. But you know what? You know what's his angle? Because if you really think about even that generation, you know, nineteen eighty. Uh, well, Richard Lewis is already gone, but you know, like Larry and Jerry yeah. and, and Bill Maher Even as a as a monologist, there was some point of view.
1: Absolutely, a thousand percent.
0: You know, even Henny Youngman. Well, you know, I remember you
1: know, uh, uh, Mar once said about Jerry that he's uh, he's thrown away an A act. Jerry used to do and he only did this bit a couple of times. He used to do a bit about uh, getting bar mitzvahed and and you're 13. And it's today I am a man. He said, you know, when I was 13, I had terrible skin. My voice was cracking. None of my clothes fit. I was awkward. I was gangly. If somebody if somebody's car broke down and they saw me standing on the side of the road at 13, they wouldn't say anything. We can get that man to help us. And it was such a, and it always got a laugh. But Jerry <laughs> tossed it out because I think he didn't want to be associated with being a Jew. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. to me, yeah. you know, standing on the silence, why, why, you know? Yeah. Well,
0: I mean, I think that he marks. I mean, and as an observer, maybe you could you could uh, validate this. That he marks the transition out of Jewishness in a way.
1: Absolutely, a thousand percent.
0: And, a and thousand because, percent. like, the 70s, it was all neurotic Jews. Right. Give or take a few, uh, you know, uh, Latinos, right. other ethnicities, you know. Uh, right. But, but the, the, like, the New York sort of cultural tone defined comedy for the country in a way. Right. And it was all Jewish. And, right. and for years before that. And I think Jerry, with the name, you know, that he just, he just gutted the Jew out of it. Right. It's interesting
1: to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, you know, when I was uh, starting and, and, and every once in a while I would get a note back from agents or people in the business, you know, you lean on that word Jew a little <laughs> too much. And, you know, it's like, well, I think it's funny and I wouldn't really listen to it. And then like five years after me, Jon Stewart comes along and it's Jew, 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 Jew. Brought it back. He's a genius, you yeah. know. And But again, again, the difference between me and he had, I think, great commitment to the way he was delivering the stuff much he more did. commitment. he did there, he
0: did like there when him as a stand up when you know before he became he had a couple of jokes that that were very smart like and, and, and he was uh, politically bold always but not over heavy handed right and and i and i you know I, I like him as much as i you know i'm jealous of him Right, well, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. So all right, so you get there in 1980, you become a house MC, one of three. Right. You know, you, you're you're part of a long legacy of of well, you know, Belzer, Belzer sort of defined that job. Absolutely. And uh, and
1: he was out of, out of control, in you know, a lot was, of ways. He was out of control, and the thing is, is that um and 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 Bill Maher did this, and I never did this. Bill Maher would do a lot of time between acts. If there was somebody, he was, the, he was the then he was the MC. The comics waiting hated right, and he <laughs> and, and he was if if um, if someone was in to see someone else, you know, Bill did a good nice bit of time so they could see, and you know that's smart to see and, him, and, and and yeah, and I. I never had that in me. This is why I ended up in Albany after I got out of Harvard and not at the Times or the Washington Post because I was the one guy at Harvard that didn't think to call the Times or the Washington Post and think, are there any Harvard guys there? I just said, well, I'll send out my clips and the best...
0: You 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 had some you you were humble or insecure one or the other.
1: Let's go with insecure.
0: All right, I because yeah. because like uh, you know I mean Harvard now is a tremendous cachet. The brotherhood, yeah, of the the Lampoon Brotherhood. But of the Harvard I was the one guy.
1: Well, because of a decision I made at eighteen to write for the Crimson rather than Lampoon, it took me much longer to break into television because right. I had no connections. In, but Harvard in th- was
0: all about connections. It was about protecting connections. That's correct. And, and and you chose not to do that because you're like, no, nah, I don't know. Maybe I'm, you know, just send my stuff out.
1: Yeah, right, <laughs> right. This is a meritocracy. You know? <laughs> I'm gonna let my wow. stuff stand on its own. And, I, and, and years later, when my first book came out the ring, I was talking to a woman that was an editor at Newsweek, who was a year ahead of me at Harvard, and I explained to her what I had done as a senior and just sending my clips out. Let's see what happens. <laughs> and she looked at me and said, "Isn't that cute?" Yeah. <laughs> You know right. yeah. you didn't understand what Harvard was that for. I had no idea. I had no I had no idea. All
0: right, so okay, so you're, you're a House MC and I remember seeing you there occasionally. I I never you know, to be quite honest with you, I never passed at the original catch and I I could not stand Louis Ferranda. Uh, and I and I and to this day I have uh, I have I still have resentment, the unresolved so, resentment. So
1: you're in you're into the we're talking the nineties now. Well no, I, 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 I adi- uh, went to Adrian and I left uh, Chris, uh, uh, New Year's Eve in 87.
0: Right. So I get there. No, I get there in 89 and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, already, you know, working, you know, I'm up in Boston and, you know, I auditioned at all the clubs and, and, you know, I just, you know, I got to sit, you know, hey, sit, sit, maybe I'll get you on. I, I was that guy. Right. Hang out at the bar.
1: You know, maybe I'll get you. on And I just
0: could not deal with it. And, uh, but I got in at the improv right before it ended and, 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 and that's uh, where
1: we met. We met at the improv.
0: So you, you're knocking it out, you know, for 13 years as a comic. Was, was there a moment where, where you, you know, I mean, you know, I get it. I get I, I know that life. And I know the, you know, like because um, I, I never I always lived that life. I never thought to be a writer. I never, you know, never even crossed my mind. And, uh, you know, I spent a lot longer than that, you know, beating my head against the wall. Was there a moment where you like, I, you know, I, I got a shift?
1: Well, I well, it was if for the 13 years, the first six, I I I loved it. And, the, and like the second seven, uh, unbeknownst to me, I was kind of trapped because it was what I was how I made a living. I didn't know how to do anything else. Right, it's I a had weird no other, to horrible no moment. No other skills. But you can and, write and, sports. And uh, yeah, what I mean, well, you know, I had a couple of shots at that, and but that's those are other stories. And and the Letterman Show came on in '82, and I submitted as a writer for them. I tried to get on as a comic. I came close, came close to the Tonight Show. You know, I have the heartbreak stories like all of us do about The Tonight Show and Letterman Show. And I submitted The Letterman Show in 84, 85, 86, 87, 88. jokes, sketch ideas. the whole thing. And, you know, in show business, when when they want you, they'll get in touch with you. Who told you
0: you how to do that? I mean, how did you know? Was there a comic? I knew
1: Bob Morton, who used to come in and see the comics, who was the producer. And uh, Stephen Starr. Who was uh, my agent at William Morris, and and they would say they're looking for somebody, and and never even came close. So I took uh, 1989 and 1990 off <laughs> yeah. from submitting. To be sad, <laughs> <laughs> just that. Well, I guess you know, you know how you feel. Yeah. How Hard. well, I guess the business has made its decision about me. <laughs> you know that, yeah. and 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 I was on the road, and and I could I could sense the shift on the road. Yeah, that clubs were closing. Yeah, and um. Then in uh, 91, I got a couple of small jobs. I got a job on Dennis Leary's show on the on the Ha Network. Yeah, before with, Comedy Central, right. right. But uh, with uh, it was a show called After Drive with Billy Kimball. He yeah. and Billy Kimball hosted. Mm-hmm. Then I got another small job. And then uh, Adrian and I were having breakfast at the Friars and Morton was there. And I, st- I walked up to him and I said, are you looking for rice? He says, we're not looking for anybody. He says, you know, but he said, you know, just write some jokes. He says, Dave's always looking for jokes. So, I, you know, I, had, I didn't have any work that week, so I started writing jokes. And he only used to do three at NBC. And on the Thursday night on the show, original show... On the yeah, original night show? Yeah. So nights, two. Really? I didn't realize Because that. there was only... Because there was one rule at late night. Do not be the tonight show. Right. So, uh, the monologue was opening remarks, and it was kind of tossed off. So, that th- Thursday night, he does one of my jokes... And then Friday night, he does one of my jokes. And then Morton calls me back. And if you were a comic back then, Morton never called anybody back. He called me back. He says, Turns out we're looking for a monologue writer. And I got hired the next week. And that was in 91. I've been there ever since. You're still there? Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I guess my question specifically is
0: you know, as the MC at Catch at that time, I mean, I can imagine what, you know, Bill Maher was doing and, you know, and, um, and Jerry, and, and I can imagine that, but you know these mythical stories about Larry David as a comic. I I do I do you know I
1: have only got some you know you, you hear half things, but you saw it, I saw it, and here's the deal. So I pass it, catch. In in June of 81. So now, and I'm working late night. I'm going on at 2 in the morning. Then I become a late night MC. So now it comes around, and it's December of 1981. It's the holidays. So all the comics, the New York comics that live out in L.A., they come back. So the shows, which are normally great, now you've got these guys that have come back for the holidays. So Larry is, is, you know, Larry David is here. And he was on Fridays then. So I'm in the hanging out in the bar, me and Ron Zimmerman.
0: Ron and, Zimmerman, how's he doing?
1: He he's great. He's a producer and he shares best friend. What else could be okay, wrong? Do you talk to him? Uh, every once in a while, yeah. We, okay. yeah. And um, so we're uh, in in the the uh, the bar, mm-hmm. and Larry is pacing back and forth, up and down the bar, and uh, Zimmerman says, "Hey, what's?" with the pacing and larry david said do you know that woody Allen used to throw up before he went on every time and i think i gotta go in and see this yeah so (laughs) hadn't he done it in a while so he i you know he was always so now i go inside and larry goes on and this is the holidays it's 10 at night it's 1981 it's packed catch is the center of the comedy universe yeah and ladies and gentlemen from fridays larry david and they go crazy and he gets on stage and the first two lines kill the first line is uh, uh you know what they say about attractive people we're not well liked <laughs> and uh you know is it okay if i use the familiar two form with you people because instead is much too formal you know yeah so the two lines kill then he does a line that doesn't work that well yeah and he says uh, is it uh, is it hot in here <laughs> then he does two lines to kill and he has done line that doesn't do that well This is very, very hot in here. (laughs) Then he does one line that kills and one line that doesn't do well. You know, you pay these kind of prices and the air conditioner is faulty. Then he does two lines in a row that don't do well. It's really very, very hot in here. (laughs) And at that moment, some guy in the audience has the nerve to say, Hey, what's your problem? My problem, I'll tell you what my problem is, is you people in the air conditioning, and screaming and storms off. And that's the first time I ever saw him. <laughs> and that incident was repeated thousands of times. one way or another. Yeah, and and it would always be, and we we got to be friends, and it was one of those things where I would uh, be on the phone with him, and I would say, so uh, how's it going for you? Have you been getting in any confrontations with people? Absolutely not my. Uh, wait a minute, the dry cleaner today. And he would tell some crazy story and still, you know, with Larry, um, and you know, it's funny about uh, this book, which is uh, the shrink thyself, is about a guy that leaves therapy. You know, Larry David was one of those guys is one of those guys that thinks that therapy is nonsense. He thinks it's absolute nonsense. And he thinks, uh, you know, they're just so bored. All they ever want to hear is I want to have sex with my aunt. Mm-hmm. He says, if you don't have that, you might as well not go to therapy. Do you believe that? No. Yeah. I don't believe that. I do believe that there are many, many therapists out there, like there are many stockbrokers, and there are probably seven good stockbrokers, and there are probably, you know, seven really good, you know, it's just out there. And as my father used to say about stockbrokers, you know, if they knew anything, they wouldn't be brokers. Yeah. you know. And, um, but Larry... And the thing about Larry, and I want to give him a lot of credit about this, he's the only guy that I can think of that has gotten more regular as he's gotten more famous. It never happens that way. He's a very pleasant guy uh, offstage. It it never happens that way. Because you never hear them interviewing a neighbor and saying, you know, I... uh, I grew up with him, and he was a real asshole, but then he became famous. Now he's a pussycat. You know, it never, it's always... Well, I, th-
0: I think you exercise a certain amount of your demons once you become relevant and validated.
1: Absolutely. But Larry has, is much more accessible now in his fame as, as he ever was. Now, that said, you know, anytime you're with him, you never know when a scene from Curb is going to yeah. break out. And the story that I tell is a few years ago, he's in town, and we're having uh, dinner... And uh, we get to, it's time for dessert. And I say, how about dessert? No, no dessert for me. Ted Denson and I have a bet. No dessert for a year. And I'm thinking,
0: it's going Larry on?
1: David. <laughs> it's Ted Danson. Yeah. They're both billionaires. But yeah. the bet's got to be like 50,000 or 100,000. Maybe the bet's like a million dollars. Yeah. And I say, how much is the bet for $200. I said, have a piece of fucking cake. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still, you know, he still is that guy.
0: Yeah. Well, and, that's, a, and well that's, that's life. It's the, right. that's the and, little things. And right? that's
1: the way uh, he has to be.
0: Right. So you get the gig at Letterman. Right. And you're there almost 25 years. Right. And you have not written your first book yet.
1: No, I don't write my first book till... Uh, till uh, I write my first book, which is everybody's first novel, which is 110,000 words, 80,000 of which are I. That doesn't get published. I write my second book, The Ringer, that gets published in 2002. Okay. My second book, Time Won't Let Me, about a band, 2005. My third book, Everything Hurts, 2009. And this book, Shrink Thyself.
0: And you have an audience for your books.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's not as it's not as big as as, as I would like. You feel uh, like you're getting better. Absolutely. A thousand percent. And I think this is my best. This is in the first person. And I think that this is the most accessible to use that word again of all my novels, because, uh, you know, the first one was about, uh, a guy that makes a living as a softball ringer in New York. And, um, you know, that's kind of tough. That's a kind of a small audience, and there's uh, some uh, prescription drug abuse in there, and you would think that would have drawn some... The second book is about... But that's about... a comedic
0: setup. Is right. it satire? Right.
1: Yeah. They're all they're all satirical in their yeah. own way. I mean, they're deathly serious to me. Yeah. When other people call them satires, I say, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. The second book is about... Was based on... Was inspired by a story that happened to my older brother about his band, In prep school, they cut an album, and then 15 years later, the album was worth $5,000 for collectors. So I recreated that story, but you know that his story is a little too cute and neat. In my story, it's 30 years later, the album's worth $10,000, and the guys can't get out of their own way to reunite. Yeah, but that was a very specific 60s garage, you know, garage rock. that was a very specific the third book everything hurts was about a guy trying to get rid of a psychosomatic limp you know again you know these are sort of high-minded thing you know it and uh, but this one you know everybody has either been to therapy Knows somebody that's in therapy has had a bad experience, has had a good experience, and this is about a guy that tries to leave therapy and tries to live the unexamined life.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And the second he makes that decision, things happen to him that would send any other, anybody else screaming back into therapy. Uh-huh. So, in so in that sense, I think that I'm reaching people a little better now. And there's
0: a lot of you in there,
1: less than the other books. The other books I usually run about sixty true. Forty percent. You know the best advice I ever got about fiction was uh, make your characters' lives complicated. You know, write what you know. Make your characters' lives complicated. So you take what's true, and and you say, well, what can I do to make this complicated? Uh, this this book. I it's mean, there's you know there's a lot of elements from my life, but I never what happens in this book. I never had sessions with my shrink. In a mental hospital while right. the shrink was in the mental hospital oh, okay i never did that uh um you know my um i never uh told uh my shrink about a, a fantasy affair that i tried to carry out and then the shrink went and looked up the same woman and had an affair with her oh, that sounds good yeah so that was yeah so so these things you make it a little uh uh sounds a, a little th- dark yeah, oh, it's absolutely dark. It's absolutely because it's it's not interesting the other way. It's not, you know, there's there's a lot of people that you can read and you know, I, I always uh, I try to be uh, I try to be funny and and uh, and uh, and I I try to be humble.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, uh, who who are your guys in terms of writers? Well, Philip Roth the best, And, and right? Richard Yates. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Richard Yates. I don't know his stuff. Oh, I know Mike, Philip. I, oh, though. you
1: got to you got to I mean you. You need to. to read Richard Yates because Wayne. he is... The, the, what are his books? Well, books. Revolutionary Road, which was made into a not a good movie. That's his most famous uh-huh. novel. Um, Easter Parade. Um, I'll check it out. A good school. But he is... Um, uh, and you know, here, here's another connection. The character of Elaine in Seinfeld was not based on Carol Leifer, as she is told. Don't tell told her that. No, Right. Don't tell her that. It was based on Monica Yates, Richard Yates's daughter, who Larry went out with really so yeah Interesting. that's who it was based on wow and breaking and, news so, and Richard Yates is the king of 1950s and 60s broken suburbanite alcoholics you know well, he, picked his, that, he
0: picked up the uh, the Cheever torch or what
1: but 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 better than Cheever because well Ben and better than Updike I feel because as I say Richard Yates his books are meant to be read by the light of your oven yeah I mean they're so depressing and and uh, I don't know. I, when I read the depressing stuff, it, it really, it lifts, it's so much richer. Sure. Than... It, gives, it, gives, it gives Jews a warm feeling. Absolutely. And he's <laughs> not, it. and he's guyish. Yeah. You know, Yates is guyish. And um, full guy. Yeah. uh But Philip Roth is my hero. It's,
0: it's amazing that you find the time to do this. And this was obviously at some point your dream unrealized
1: and then you realized it to be a novelist. It, uh, well put. I always thought... That I didn't have the gene in me right. to write a long form because I was writing jokes, I was yeah. writing scripts, I was a stand-up, I, you know, I was a sports writer. To me, it was all in installments. And um, there's that
0: insecurity that unlike the unlike Harvard insecurity that you right. carry well, with it, you, right?
1: The, it, and, and and what happened was I just didn't think I I, I had it. I, I wanted it badly, but I never had it. And then when I was uh, I picked up a book when I was 38 uh, that called The Artist's Way, which is a tremendous yeah, book. It uh, Jul- had, had workshops. Cameron, yeah. And that uh, You yeah, really? That did it? Changed my real I mean I'm the millionth person whose life had changed because it you know you do these morning pages which I still do 18 and a half years later and it just kind of blows off it's like blowing off the foam on the top of a beer. You just get all that crap out in the morning and your mind is a little more open did it help to- you joke writing. Absolutely. A thousand percent. Really? A thousand percent. Well, you just sit down for a, a period of time? You do three pages. It takes 20 minutes. I've been doing it for years. And it's it's very journalistic. It's like, you know, the dry cleaning didn't come back. Right. You know, it's like that. But you just get that stuff and you get to see the other thing. It's very valuable because you get to see your hand move. Mm-hmm. You get to be a writer first thing when you wake up.
0: You did it by so, hand?
1: Yeah, you, absolutely.
0: That's what you have to do. You Absolute. can't do it on the computer?
1: You know, people do, but I don't think it's the same thing. Huh. People do. People do. I, I did mean, that. I
0: journaled during uh, my divorce every day because I, I had I had no choice. It seemed
1: right. And how did and did that did that help you? Did that help you? It get... helped me.
0: But reading it now is very painful.
1: Well, I read. Yeah, I mean, I read my stuff after the fact. So I uh, so I'll just so here's the deal. So yeah. I start doing the morning pages in August of 1995. Right, and I'm doing them every day. In October of 1995 I stopped gambling as a degenerate gambler. Really? In November of 1995 I stopped drinking and in December of 1995 I start working on my first novel and I and that's that was. I mean, it directly
0: was correlation. To absolutely,
1: them, a thousand percent. A
0: degenerate gambler.
1: Degenerate gambler. I say that, and, and you can. And I'm sorry, we're on the radio, but you can see me kind of smile when I say that because it's. Yeah, I mean, it was. Yeah, absolutely. That was your thing. It was my thing. Well, everything was my thing, but that was my. Um, that was my daily thing. Did you ever? T- how? What was the edge you reached? How
0: much did you lose?
1: Oh, I came. Ve- well, I remember. I remember. Uh, well, you know, you used to have to settle up every week uh-huh. uh and and with i rem- with my bookie and i remember i owed my bookie um <laughs> yeah. I owed my bookie 39.95 i owed a, you know th- uh, 3,909 and, and i said to him i said hey you just make sure you bring the five right <laughs> 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 but you never
0: got to a point where you had to, to borrow money or
1: uh came i mean i came as close as you can come I can't. Well, I mean, I was under. Yeah. So, and I was one of those guys. I mean, I was when I was fifty thousand dollars in debt before I got the Letterman job. This was my fantasy. I was. We were fifty thousand dollars in debt, not just a gamble, but other stuff. You know, being comics. You know. Sure. Right. And this was my plan. My plan: fifty thousand dollars in debt was to get hit by a cab and and sue, sue the cab company. For sixty thousand, <laughs> <laughs> that, that wasn't plan. Not not for a million. You're supposed to sue for a million sure. and settle for right. sixty. No, it was sixty, and I figure you know, give the lawyer a taste, and yeah. then I would be yeah, I yeah. would be straight. Well, you're, you're you're a reasonable man. Yeah, you're a that, moral guy. That's
0: right. That's that right. were you were you standing out in the street trying to figure out how to do it or didn't get it? Wasn't
1: that? until years. It was. It wasn't until about a year after I stopped. Gambling that I actually got hit by a cab, uh, and, and it, was, it was entirely my okay. fault. And it was one of those things where I stepped off the curb, and I felt it. And as I'm in the air, I'm thinking, "This is what it must be like to get hit by a cab." And then I landed on the the um, hood. The hood. And I was okay, and the guy was shaken up. Uh, the The cab driver was beside, and I said, uh, "I'm okay," and it was my fault. And of course, he'd never had anybody say that to him.
0: Right? Yeah, yeah.
1: And I was okay, amazingly. This uh, this, this this insecurity
0: streak makes you a moral man.
1: Well, uh, well, good. Uh, you know, well, who am I to disagree with you?
0: Yeah. But uh, all right, so well, uh, congratulations on the new book. But I, I do want to get into your relationship with Letterman, and because he's so you know he's a, a hero of mine. Okay, and uh, you know you were I, were you there when I did the panel last time? Absolutely, the first time I ever did panel. I
1: know, it was and great. I was there. Well, it, you know it must have been uh, very significant for you because you don't remember me coming up and 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 saying good job. No, I do, I do, <laughs> I do, I do. But of course, yeah,
0: yeah, and it was like because uh, I'd done the show a few times, I never really thought he, he registered me. And uh, but to sit there with him was a big deal, you know. To look at him and and have that opportunity. Let me.
1: And 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 I get it, and and I get it, and he doesn't. You can tell him as I have tell as I have told him many many times. You have no idea what it means to comics to come and sit with you. You have no idea what it means to them. He said, "Oh, that's nonsense." You know. And I said, "What do I, what do I have to do?" To convince you. It was mind-blowing to me. It was like, it was
0: like, uh, it was a high point. You know, doing the show. Well, Artie,
1: you know, I I was in, uh, I don't want to brag about my acting career, but I was in Beer League. I played the umpire. (laughs) Yeah. And Artie Lang came on the show after Beer League. And he was great and he told the stories. And uh, he said to me, biggest thrill of my career. Yeah. Yeah, to just sit there across from him. Because you're fighting with this thing of of like, Dave Letterman's right there. Right. He's right there, you know, and, and- and as, and having been a guest on the show to promote my books and working with him every day, and then all of a sudden sitting in the chair, I get it because yeah. it's different for me because the thing, and I don't know if you know, if I don't know if this, this hit you, but the thing when I'm sitting in the chair and I'm a guest on the show and I look at him, I, he is so comfortable and I am so not comfortable. <laughs> and I thought, how am I, am not even going to compete as, as in a, in conversation with this. Because this is completely his, turf. and it's so
0: heightened too. Because like you know, you are just talking, but but there, it's almost an out of body experience in the moment, right? Because you want to just talk, but then you realize like it's like this is his world. You're you know, this is Dave's universe here, and you know you're on television. It's just so like his comfort in in the face of
1: all that is is astounding, right? And and it's become much more so in the last ten years because I think since the heart surgery, a thousand percent. Because now. Uh he doesn't uh he doesn't care if the if the show runs over and has to be edited down. I mean he cares, but he cares more about finishing the conversation that he started. He cares more about uh the connection. Oh good. And, and that's and new. Uh, well Last absolutely decade. I mean it was always it was I think it was always there, but I think that um I think he got warmer. A thousand, Yeah, I agree. Uh, absolutely. And I think that he, uh, yeah, I just think that he realized the job wasn't, wasn't going away and this is what he loved to do. And, um, you know, if you just have a regular conversation with him, he asks the questions it's just in a regular conversation that nobody else asks. And there's a lot of times just during the day where, uh, you know, he, we'll be talking about something that I, I feel pretty knowledgeable about. And he'll ask me a question and I'll go, excuse me for a second. And then I got to go to the computer to get an answer for him <laughs> at one second. You know, yeah, yeah. now, he, he, like,
0: I, I find it to be mysterious in that, you know, you hear things here and there that, you know, he's he's insulated. He doesn't like to talk to people. He you know, he, he you know, he's uh, he's um, not accessible. Uh, he, you, you know, he's a, he's a little kooky. And uh, but you do you consider you consider him a friend? Do you guys socialize?
1: No, we don't. We we, very. I mean, maybe a a a couple times a year. You know, I'll go with him somewhere where he wants to go. But we don't. We don't. We used to play squash for a while. We. I mean, but we don't. um, I think that we get. uh, It's so intense. You know, I work for him, and we have the friendship at the show. No, I get that. The, the, I mean, so I've been it's, on, yeah, it's, it's I, one of those things. But I'll tell you, and, and this is—you uh, got to
0: be the guy that's been there the longest, or one w- other guy. N- no, well, I'm guys.
1: the I'm the well. Steve Young has been there, started a year before I did, so he's the writer that's been there the longest. And we have a lot of people. I mean, Barbara Gaines and Jude Brennan have been there since the morning show. Do you know, there we did a thing when when he was 30 years in late night, which was 2012. We did a top 10, and it was the top 10 longest serving staffers. I didn't come close to making that list. I was been the one t-
0: guy that had been there forever, the comedy writer. Well,
1: Jerry Mulligan. No, he retired in 2004. Oh, right. But he had been there a long time. And he had also been on the morning show. But I was thinking, um, uh, pursuant uh, to this, to my book, about, well, how am I going to tie in uh, Dave with my book? So I was seeing a shrink uh, years ago. Mm-hmm. And and it was one of those things, you know, when you see a shrink, you're a you're not supposed to know anything about them and they're not supposed to talk about themselves. So at the time it was about 1995 or 1996 and CBS had been sold to Westinghouse and the guy that was in charge of Westinghouse was a guy named Michael B. Jordan. Yeah. And Dave uh, was upset that the guy had not called him. So for a week or maybe two every night behind the desk he would say uh listen i've decided that i'm going to fight this guy <laughs> and he would say so one time i come into my to my shrink appointment and and sometimes we would talk about the show but most times we had to talk about the stuff that you got to talk about in therapy that's way much earlier than Letterman. yeah and i sit down and my shrink says listen bill before we begin um i just uh now you know i i don't watch the show but the other night um i was up late and and i happen to have the sh- well was dave challenging his boss to a fight and then and then that's that situation if you've ever been in it where all of a sudden you're the therapist right. and then all of a sudden you have to say to your therapist okay go with that well what yeah. do you mean fight and, <laughs> yeah. well let's talk about it yeah. and that was you know and and that's the that's the effect that um that's the effect that this guy has on everybody and at first after when he announced his retirement and you know every day people were coming up to me and saying what are you going to do and and like and and their worry was did not seem very real and i was like look we got 200 shows left i'll worry about that after the 200 shows i'm not even thinking about that but then it took another person to point out to me look this isn't just happening to dave And this isn't just happening to all of us that work there. This is happening to everybody that's watched him for 33 years. So when people say to me, what are you going to do? They're just saying, what am I going to do? And so now I'll have any conversation with people
0: Uh about that. Yeah. Do you think he, uh, do you think they're like, in my mind, I'm like, like he,
1: in my mind, it's like he, he waited till Jay left first. I, I think that absolutely had a I I mean it was you know, it's the TKO, it's the guy that can't answer the bell. Yeah, yeah. But I'll tell you what I said to him uh 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 one day, uh this is a few months ago, this is before the announcement, and this is after so let's say let's say it's April. Mm-hmm. So Jay had left in February. And uh um, it's during a break, and I look at him and I said is it me or does the air just smell sweeter with Jay not on it? <laughs> and you just, just a little corner of his mouth <laughs> came off. <up. laughs> yeah.
0: Just. I'll tell you, man, you know, he's done some amazing stuff, you know, and I, I watched him at the beginning when I was in college. And I, I, the way he handled that blackmail attempt was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life.
1: I, well, I mean.
0: Just to come clean and just fucking just gut that guy. I thought it was great.
1: Well, you know, I think that um it was it, it was uh I I remember it was sort of uh an it was just an odd day and you know, you wondered how he would handle it and he handled it, you know, he got out in front of it and then of course in the we did two shows that day. So we did it in the first show, <laughs> in the second show, Larry David is the lead guest. Uh-huh. And he had been there early and heard the first he said, what have I walked into? You know, it's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. why this day? Yeah.
0: That's hilarious. It and like uh, but so you he he's always treated you well and he treats the staff well and he's a good Absolutely.
1: Man. And but 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 think about well, I mean you know a lot of people that are famous, that have had jobs a long time. It, it's um you think about that job. It's insane. It's, it's an insane job. and think about let I'll just choose this name. Think about having to interview Jasmine Guy mm-hmm. twice a year for 30 years. And I'm think, and I, I use Jasmine Guy because she probably used the publicity just as an example of somebody that the people that you have to talk to. and he makes it seem like he is interested, and if he, he makes it seem and if he's not interested. He turns it so that it's compelling to watch
0: right, yeah, and gets the person so it's, only, it's sometimes it's great when he's like a little irritated used to be more so but uh, yeah. well
1: i have often said about him mm-hmm. that he's the only he's the only guy, and I challenge anybody, uh, challenge you know another name uh he's the only guy in the history of television whose mood has been chronicled on television, yeah now Roseanne. Nobody crazier than Roseanne. You know, she's been a guest of the state a few times, but you never watch an old episode of Roseanne and think, oh, yeah, yeah, this is when she was having a fight with the network. Yeah, no, because she's doing her show and she's locked in. That's the thing about Dave is that as a, um, you know, maybe as a as a guy, not accessible, but as like as a human being public you know, yeah right the public persona. very accessible no yeah it's like, oh he's, he he's lives up, there he's upset yeah that's right he yeah. lives there and that's what's it's um it's it's amazing to watch and and the longer the longer i'm there the more i understand how difficult the job is no, his job is brutal because you know we're you know i mean i consider myself a con you know you're a comic and you think well, I could go go out and tell moniker. I got some stuff yeah. and then I could talk to people. Mm, then, sure. Yeah, you could do it for a night or two nights yeah. or or a but week. Every but what night. about 33? I mean, what about that? Yeah. And and um and just ver and and he's always been uh you know, the first one in, the last one out. He uh people ask me uh a guy asked me about uh, you know, does he still like to do it? Well, all I can tell you is I get down to the dressing room at, uh, at 2.45, and then he comes up, and we go through the monologue. And there's, uh, there's two, two flights of stairs.
0: You're the head monologue guy.
1: You had, right, right, me and Steve Young. Head, and uh, so I'm waiting for him, and he he's 67, and he runs up those two flights of stairs every day he
0: used to run them all didn't he because i remember the first time i did it i actually saw him in, in like mid-run it was weird. no he, he
1: he runs yeah he runs the whole hallway and then he runs the two flights of stairs at the end so forget that he's 67 and can do that forget that but that's he's running up those stairs because he wants to start his day and when i see him stop running up those stairs then i'll say all right well maybe you don't want to do this you know
0: yeah well let's go over this one other thing which is uh, if I'm not mistaken, the night that they pulled Hicks's set, you yes. did it right. you did the set right.
1: I am that footnote and uh, absolutely and uh, just to
0: set it up for people that don't know. Bill Hicks had done a set and it was fairly <laughs> controversial and uh, you know he was censored and there's been a lot of you know I think the story the true story is probably out there but but uh, they pulled the set. He reacted to it in in uh, Lars' column in uh, New York Magazine, and but you were it, the guy that that they played your set,
1: right? So here's so it, let me let's let's just back up. For so Adrian, nerves. yeah, my wife Adrian Tulch is working in in, uh, in in Houston where she used to work all the time, and she sees Hicks, and she says to him, "Listen, if you come to New York." I will get you seen by the Letterman people and you'll get on. And she had said only said that to one other person who was Emo Phillips. And it happened for him. So Hicks says, okay. So she uh, calls Morton and Morton again returns her call, which never happened, and says, you remember with, with Emo, I got another guy. And so Morton comes in. Now Jay, of course, has spent the last 20 years telling everybody with his idea, you know, like everything in show business is yeah. Jay's idea. But my wife got hicks the letterman show and he did it i think eight or nine times at nbc and he was one of the there were about five comics that worked the show a lot him and jake mm-hmm. and um oh, for the now i can't remember the the other guys but uh, uh wayne cotter used to do the show and um at margaret smith yeah peg smith and um so uh now we go to cbs and it's our 25th show it's our fifth week stephen wright was the first comic to be, on, to be on the new show. Oh, okay. To be on the new show. And Hicks is booked. And Hicks and I are old friends. I, you know, I opened for him. I did, um, when he taped his first album, I opened for him. And, um, you know, I knew him for a while. I was very fond of him. Yeah.
0: And I was doing the audience He's a good up. guy. He was in New York for a couple of years. Remember he was, that? Week? They, he, yeah. He's like, I got to get out of here.
1: They, no, they, that was, yeah. And we were down at Caroline's and he yeah. would, yeah, he was great and, and he would work the improv. And again, the commitment to the material. So, um before the show went on the air they did two shakedown shows where they test the equipment and audience and all thing and i was on the second shakedown show doing stand-up and i was still test a show yeah i was still a stand-up then yeah it was probably one of the last sets i ever uh, uh did and uh you know went great and uh, and that was it so now here's hicks and uh i go backstage before the show and he's got, and I'll never forget this, he's wearing a yellow button-down shirt and a yellow tweed like a herringbone jacket completely. Yeah. And I said, "What? what is this? He said, this is the new friendlier Bill Hicks. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, okay, right. So now he comes out and um, the set is... 89? No, this is 93. This is October 1st, 1993. So he's sick already. Right. And nobody knows. Mm -hmm. Okay. Nobody knows. He dies in December. So he comes on and he gets um, some laughs, some big laughs up front. And, but the set is, it's not like a Hicks set. Um, It's just odd. And some of the choices are, are, are odd. And it's not, it's not the balls. But it was
0: produced, right? I mean, you knew it
1: was, well, well, it was yeah the 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 stuff that was selected probably should not have been selected. That's the problem is that the the, the set was not built to his advantage. Who was the
0: segment producer?
1: I don't know. Uh-huh. I don't remember who it was back then. And uh, it, but you know he does he does well. But there are a couple of odd moments. And knowing him as I do. Um, not of him, but I don't think anything of it. And then he goes, and Dave was laughing at a couple of stuff, a couple of things up front, and and he sits down with Dave, does a little panel with Dave, and then Dave says, "Hey, uh, good luck with your mail." That's the last thing Dave says to him
0: because of the because of the abortion, abortion joke, right. and
1: because of the the uh, the gay. Uh, it was uh, I think there uh, were a couple of the abort. There's a couple of things, so uh, that's it and And I go over to him backstage, and he he said, "Well, how do you think that went?" And I say, "It went great. Dave was laughing, and he was at Caroline's that weekend. And I said, "I'm gonna come see you at Caroline's because we were friends, and I love Colleen and yeah. the whole deal. And then he was going down to West Palm, yeah. So now I come upstairs, and Jeff Stilson was a writer on the show, and you know Jeff. Mm-hmm. and Jeff, very strong comic. Mm-hmm. And Jeff is waiting for me. And he says, "What was that?" And they're old friends, him and Hicks. He says, What was that? I said, Oh, geez, so it's not just me. Because I thought it was odd. And there was uh the the fur the very first line of it was very hacky for mm-hmm. him, that let's hunt and kill Billy Ray Cyrus. Right. Very hacky. Not not of not like him yeah. to do something like that. And um, so I figured, oh great, I'm not the only one that thought it was a little beneath mm-hmm. him. And then uh I'm up in my office, and I do whatever I do, and then I come down, and uh, and and I and it's Dave and Bob Morton and some CBS people, and I say goodbye, because it's Friday night, and Dave says, hey, uh, uh, watch uh, the show tonight, and you'll be in for a surprise, and I say, oh, shit, was I caught on camera, which used to happen as a warm-up guy, and you, did, you didn't want to be caught on camera. Yeah. And he says, uh, yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't know was that they were discussing that they were going to cut my shakedown show performance in. And uh, they did not make that decision till really late. As a matter of fact, what people don't know is that the open announce, the show was rolled in live at 1130 and Dave did Bill Wendell's open announce. Dave was staying there at 1130. So they cut in my... um, and 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 that's what happened and they they went to Hicks i mean you know every, you know people were wrong uh i don't think that he was told the truth hicks but i think they also were very anxious to get him back on the show soon what was the reason the, i think the reason was i think the reason was that we were only on the air for 5 weeks and we just did not uh, the show just did not want all this controversy. So from the Christians, uh, well, I think it was, I think there were a couple, yeah, or whatever, whatever it was. They just thought uh, we just didn't, they just didn't want to take that on.
0: The Christian right might have. Yeah, I
1: mean, mean, yeah. yeah. And um, they just did not, did not want that, but they told him, they said, listen, this is our fault because the set should have been better produced and there's other stuff and this and that. And, and uh, and we're we're gonna have you on real soon. But nobody knew he was sick. Nobody knew he was dying. And uh, so, of course, that's what happened. And, and, and I think that Bill. I think Bill kind of ran with it. I don't think that you know, um, uh, you know. I don't think that he was. Uh, you know. I think that he was really hurt.
0: And um, probably because he knew it might have been one of his last sets on that show.
1: A thousand. Uh, absolutely. And so that, uh, that happened, and then, you know, it was, um, you know, it became a mystery over all of these. And, and back then, we used to get, we had these huge monster ratings, and of course, um, uh, you know, nobody ever knew that it was me that went on. And then, I don't know how many years later, Dave had his mother on.
0: I know, I was going to ask you about that. That, that was, was really something. That was, was Dave's decision. Was it eating at him? Yes. It must have been
1: it was and 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 that's like how many years later is more than a decade oh absolutely it was and and bill hicks's mom said to him uh i knew once you had a son that you would come (laughs) she said this to him did she say that on the air yes i can't remember and uh and he you know and he righted the run now i didn't i don't know anything that's going on i never do i just work on my little he didn't run the set though it would have been interesting. No one. Yes, they did. It. They did run it. They ran it that night. Oh, good. Okay. And Dave says I'm embarrassed because this stuff is as funny now as it was then, and for me to think that was controversial, and I'm embarrassed. No, they ran it. They ran the whole set. Now, it, now, just because you know I'm here, I'll just tell you about me. I had no idea that Hicks's mother was going to be on until the day before, and I didn't think anything of it. And then, of course. I relived all this, and I felt awful that I was cut in because I was friends with him. But Colleen said he was thrilled it was you. I felt very guilty, but even though it was not my decision. And I went up to Hicks's mother, like I came up to you after she finished, and I said, uh, hi, um, my name is Bill Sheff. She said, I know who you are. And she said, Bill was very fond of you. And, of course, it was everything I could do not to break down and cry because, you know, but I was, I, I, I like to think that maybe it was some closure for everybody on that, but that's what happened. Mm. That's what happened. And, and, and I, I'm sorry that it got, that it went sideways and, and he became this sort of censicu, uh, this censored, persecuted uh, 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 martyr. And it was, it was it, to me, as a comic, it was a set that was just not well produced. Mm-hmm. And it was not, well thought out and it was not he didn't close with his strongest right bit it
0: was a it was a it was a, com, a, a comf, uh, you know it was a bunch of events it was a, it was a new show they didn't want controversy right. and it wasn't his strongest set right and the, the fact that he passed away so shortly after you know sort of you know amplified.
1: well as it, they did a a, a um I find two things interesting. They did this a documentary many, many years ago, and Dave was on, and he said, well, Bill's... He was a favorite of ours, yeah. and his last appearance on our show uh, was made uh, more odd by the circumstances of his... The fact that yeah. he never yeah. got back on. And the thing that I found amazing is there have been many books written about Hicks, many books, and many books written about this night, and of all those books... Uh, I was only interviewed once, and uh, because I didn't give play to the narrative, yeah, it was really never run in that book.
0: Mm-hmm. What in Kevin's or or uh, Cynthia's?
1: I think Cynthia. Yeah,
0: she didn't interview. She no, she interviewed. Me. Right, she interviewed me, but Kevin didn't.
1: Yeah, yeah. and, and um, because I, you know, I wasn't. Yeah, man, he was. You know. <laughs> It was, you know, the people, and he was, yeah. you know, yeah, the, you know, the set shouldn't have been. The Im- man shut him down. Yeah, and so that was, uh, but that was it. But uh, I'm glad I got the chance to 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 tell that uh, um, story. You know, there's a guy. He's a newspaper writer and, and he's a musician in North Carolina named John Dawson, and he says, you know, what I like about Bill Hicks is there. There's this guy, and he's. He's saying these brilliant things and these deep things and these hilarious things, and he sounds like me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, And that was the thing about Hicks that
0: hey, he was great. Yeah, he was a good guy.
1: He was a great
0: guy. Yeah. Well, thanks, Bill, and good luck with the book. It was a great talk.
1: Well, thank. I mean, I I loved it, and and uh, you know, God bless you for for having me out here. And uh, it's always uh, I I love uh, talking about stand up because you know stand ups if you get. Uh, two guys at an airport that have never met two comics and yeah. there's a three hour layover and they find out they're both comics that three hours just flies by oh, yeah. right yeah, never this a guy's shortage. a scumbag yeah, and yeah, this yeah, guy yeah, yeah. screwed me yeah. did you see
0: that one guy what he did
1: yeah
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah it was great talking to you
1: thanks so much
0: That's cool that was a good conversation I like talking to that guy um, what else go to WTFPod.com get the app if you want upload the app for free, then upgrade to premium. Get all the fucking episodes. Get all those fucking episodes. Leave a comment. Buy some merch. Christmas is coming up. I got no plan for this. Rest in peace, Hubert Sumlin.
1: I know it's been a while, but yeah. Boomer lives!